Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sports Virus Podcast, everybody. I'm Joe Castellano. We're brought to you, as always, by Kane's Tire in San Rafael, California, where they have had the lowest prices in Marin County for over 60 years. Well, today's guest is a legendary play-by-play announcer on network television. Spent a lot of years with CBS Sports most recently. And when you think of Vern Lundquist, our guest today, you think about NFL games back a long time ago. You think about some great calls, like the Christian Leitner turnaround jumper that beat Kentucky in the final seconds for the national championship, the NCAA tournament. Think about SEC football and so many great calls there and great moments. The Masters. Tiger Woods, some of the great uh, shots over the years, and he still covers the Masters. And how about even figure skating at the Olympics? So versatile, so likable, and he was an announcer that you wanted to invite into your living room for a few hours with that soothing voice that he has, so distinctive. And we're going to get a chance to hear that voice here for the next half hour or so as Vern Lundquist my guest on the podcast, conversation that we had on Wednesday. Well, Vern, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, first of all, how are you doing? What are you up to these days? Well, we are we're still living in uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, uh, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous ski resort, uh, northwestern Colorado. Uh, Nancy and I moved here in 1984. And uh, we've been full-time residents ever since. Uh, we came up from Dallas. Uh, and then about three years ago, we have family in Austin, and that is really the only family that we have. My brother, his wife, their three kids, and their grandkids. And uh, so three years ago, we bought a condo in downtown Austin. And uh, we, had, matter of fact, we head out one week from today, and... Uh, once the leaves have fallen, have changed and fallen here uh, in, this, uh, in this environment, it gets pretty barren until the snow starts falling. Uh, the ski resort opens in Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving Day. So anyway, we're going down to Texas and spend a six-week period down there and uh, uh, reintroduce ourselves to our family. And uh, we're, we're pretty much uh, divided between these two when, when we're not traveling. Uh, we've had an occasion uh, to get out of town, and matter of fact, uh, Joe, I've got a relationship with Oceana Cruise Lines uh-huh. uh, that I've had for 19 years now, and uh, we, uh, Nancy and I, are allowed to go on these ships, and and uh, I do what you might consider after dinner speeches, uh, although they're usually uh, 11 o'clock in the morning or 1 o'clock in the afternoon during days at sea. And uh, we just came back from a six-and-a-half-week trip uh, only three weeks ago. So, uh, you know, anecdotal stuff and, and uh, hope to keep the people, diver- uh, get, provide a diversion while they look at water. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I'm curious, uh, you know, in retirement, how much do you miss, you know, doing the play-by-play? You're still involved with the Masters, and I love hearing your voice on the Masters. Uh, but you know, you go through that grind uh, during your career where you're covering one event after another. So, is there a part of it that you miss and a part that you don't miss? Well, I do not miss the travel. 
that more than anything else, uh, anybody who's tried to fly recently uh, understands that uh, it's just an ordeal. It is just an ordeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is especially true when you live in a resort community that is, uh, there are no non-stops from Tuscaloosa to Steamboat Springs. And uh, so to get, uh, for the first 10 years that I did the SEC, uh, the travel was brutal. Uh, we would have to fly a commuter flight from Steamboat to Denver, uh, then uh, a large aircraft, Denver to Atlanta, then commuter flight, Atlanta to wherever that game was that weekend, and then reverse the process on Sunday. So uh, it, it was just exhausting. Now, the last six years, seven years, uh, my boss in New York, Sean McManus, said, would your life be any easier uh, if we got a... Uh, corporate apartment for you and Nancy in Atlanta, and they did that. And that was just wonderful. We'd, we'd moved down uh, a week before the first college game and and uh, then not come back until uh, after the SEC championship game or the Army-Navy game. So it, it reduced the, the stress just immeasurably. And we love Atlanta, so that was, that was really fun. Uh, but other than that, I, I still miss the uh miss the uh, idea of being in that environment uh when i was growing up i never aspired to be a studio guy i always wanted to be where the games were being played and uh, my goal from the time i got into business was was uh network play by play and uh through a roller coaster ride initially it finally worked out and i was able to to uh to to go full time for for joe for Oh gosh, how many years? Seventy-four to eighty-two. I was doing the local. I was a sports director for the local TV station in Dallas, ABC affiliate, uh-huh. and uh, I did the Cowboy Radio networks on Sunday. And in between those, uh, in the fall, I would do a college football game for ABC. So it was just a grind. <laughs> and uh, then I, I got lucky. Not. You know, and I went full time with CBS in '83, and uh, uh, that that allowed me to concentrate just on on the network games and not uh, the responsibilities of six and ten o'clock newscast and uh, and the cowboy radio broadcast. So that was really uh, the culmination of a lot of hopes and dreams at at that point. We'll continue the conversation with Vern Lundquist in just a minute, right after this. When it's time for new tires, you want the lowest prices and the best service, don't you? Well, Kane's Tire in San Rafael has you covered on both. Kane's has the lowest prices in Marin County, and they provide the warm and welcoming service that you can only receive from a family-run business. Voted best of Marin for 35 years in a row, Kane's prices beat Costco's prices every time. Kane's Tire, 1531 4th Street in San Rafael. Give him a call at 415 453 2942. That's 415-453-2942 for Kane's Tire. I want to go back to the Cowboy Radio games, and I didn't realize this until I was doing some research here on your career, that you were uh, the radio announcer when the Cowboys were playing the 49ers and the catch happened. 
right? I, cer- yeah. I certainly was. <laughs> and I'm curious as your reaction when, when you know, Dw- Dwight Clark reaches up to catch that ball. Montana, you know, puts it in a, a spot where really only he could catch it. I've, I've never heard your call on that, so I'm just curious what your reaction was. Well, it was probably filled with uh, exasperation. Uh, I do remember that uh, I'm sure some of your listeners and perhaps you, Joe, are familiar with a country western group called uh, the Gatlin Brothers. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Larry, Steve, and Rudy. Well, they were good friends of mine. They headquartered out of Dallas at that time. And Rudy was at the game, and we had him in the booth. And you might remember that Don Meredith gained fame in part because when Cosell and Gifford in the in the booth, if he deemed the game over, he would go go into song <laughs> right. and sing, "Turn out the lights, the party's over." Right. In the inimitable Don Meredith voice, while Rudy Gatlin was standing by with us, uh, Brad Sham and myself, uh, and he was going to at the two minute warning. We were going to come out of the two minute warning because Cowboys were up. And he was going to sing, turn out his version, <laughs> turn out the lights, the party's over. Well, he never got a chance to sing. And uh, I have so many memories about that game, not the least of which. And first of all, Joe Montana insisted still that he was trying to uh, get in touch with, with uh, Dwight Clark in the end zone. I didn't believe him then. I don't believe him now. You think he was throwing it away? Well, I think I sure did, because uh, Larry Bethea and Ed Tutal Jones were honing in on him, and I mean they were about to complete a sack, and he he threw it off the back foot, and Dwight Clark just made one of the great catches in the history of the game, and over Everson Walls, and uh, Everson Walls was a free agent safety who was down, turned into a great great player for the Cowboys. But I think Brad and I, and certainly Rudy Gatlin, we all thought, well, that the Cowboys are going to take over on downs now. And uh, so anyway, uh, and then the other thing about the end of that game, is Danny White was the quarterback, and, and uh, he hit Drew Pearson. And Drew Pearson was across the 50, and only an ankle tackle. Uh, a desperation dive by a defensive back. I think it was Eric Wright. I think it was, And he yeah. caught Drew, Drew and, and trapped him, uh, caught him, brought him down. Uh, or else uh, we might not be talking about the 49er dynasty <laughs> because <laughs> that changed the fortunes of two teams. <laughs> I mean, the 49ers became one of the dominant teams uh, of that era, and the Cowboys declined, in my view, Begin with that loss. Uh, they suffered mightily until, till they got these guys named uh, Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, and Emmett Smith. But it, it was a long time. Those radio days. Uh, how much do you look back fondly on those? A lot of announcers will tell you that you know they love radio, and then of course you switch to television. And it's a different medium. Oh gosh, is it ever the. I mean, Brad Sham and I started, listen to this, I, I started with the Cowboy Radio Network in 67 as the pre- and post-game guy. Uh, I was promoted to the color guy. I wouldn't say analyst. I was a color guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the band is wearing red and gold. That, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and uh, I worked with Bill Mercer. 
Bill, Bill, and Bill is, is still living. He's 96. Matter of fact, his name came up uh, last night when uh, Aaron Judge hit the 62nd. Bill left the Cowboys uh, in 72 uh, because he'd always aspired to be a Major League Baseball announcer. And he got the job when the Rangers came to, uh, to Arlington uh, from Washington, D.C. So that opened up the play, play job on radio. And uh, Tex Ram uh, hired me to be the play-by-play guy. Now, from that year, 72, until the current moment, there have only been two, I believe this is correct. Well, no, Brad Sham took a three-year hiatus and did the Rangers. But with the exception of that three years, from 72 to 2020, uh, you can essentially say two guys have done the radio broadcast. <laughs> wow. That and is, and Brad, uh, as I said, we're still great friends. And I hear from him periodically. Uh, and his, his joy and his... He told me once, I always wanted to be a network play-by-play guy. And Brad told me once, Joe, that uh, his aspiration was to be regarded as the Jack Buck of Dallas-Fort Worth. Well, Jack was the St. Louis Cardinals baseball announcer. Did He did uh, CBS games, but Brad never wanted network. Uh, he always wanted to be associated with one team, and is he ever. Uh, the radio television booth in, in, uh, in Arlington at uh, AT&T Stadium is called the Brad Sham Broadcast Booth. Uh, which is pretty special. Oh, yeah. I mean, Brad Cham is a great announcer and a great guy. I got to know him a little bit at the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, and I know you were there doing figure skating, and uh, I was doing speed skating on the radio, and Brad was hosting a show, and he would use a lot of my highlights, and we, we were good friends uh, you know, meeting then. And one thing I thought of, Vern, uh, during that Olympics, that was my first time doing a sport like speed skating. I'd been doing baseball and basketball, and I, I, just, I learned a lot just from watching you because you would do all of these different sports, and I'm curious, how did that uh, transition work for you from going to being you know, just a guy who does – football, basketball, you know, you're doing the Winter Olympics and you're doing figure skating. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was hardly, well, I'll tell you the background. Uh, I was doing, uh, uh, well, we live in a, a wonderful ski resort and our director of skiing has been since 1970, he's retired now, but the great Billy Kidd. And Billy was the first American to win a medal in the go in the Olympic Games. He did that in the slalom in 1964. So I can vividly remember when I got a call from New York, uh, and they said we have acquired the rights to the 92 Olympic Games in Albertville, France. Yeah, and I, and we'll call you with your assignment shortly. And I just naturally assumed that. Uh, that I would be assigned to figure skating. Billy was a friend. He was our Alpine uh, analysis at that time on CBS Sports Spectacular. And uh, then I got a call two weeks later, and they said, you're doing figure skating. <laughs> and I about had a heart attack. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> yep, yeah, we think you're going to be good to that. And your partner's going to be Scott Hamilton. <laughs> well... I and here, so 
we did we did a practice event at the World Arena in Broadmoor. It was the World Junior Championships, and I didn't know squat. <laughs> and uh, then our next assignment, and it was major, was the European Championships in January of '91, I believe, uh, in Leningrad or St. Petersburg now, and. Once we got over there, we were there for two weeks, and Scott realized how inept I was, and I didn't know one jump from another. I didn't know what was involved, and we worked out a system, Joe. Uh, Scott always sat to my left, and uh, if, a, if a particularly challenging sequence in the, in the four-minute long skate, free skate, or four-and-a-half was coming up, uh, knowing that he should be analyzing this, he would reach over and he would he would put his right arm on my now nah, his is I'm sorry his left left right arm on my right forearm, and that meant shut up, <laughs> and I got this, and we got through the Olympic Games that way, because uh, I still didn't know squat, and then. We had that one, and then we had the infamous Nancy Tanya thing in '94, yes, right? Which was extraordinary, uh, and then we did Nagano, as you know. Uh, so we did three, and I got dangerous because by the time we got to Nagano, I thought I knew a little bit about the sport, <laughs> and he, he kept saying, "No, you don't." <laughs> uh, but uh, he lives in uh, suburban Nashville with his wife, and and he and. He and Tracy have two children, and then they adopted a brother and sister from Haiti after the terrible earthquake uh, down there. And we, we're we in touch, oh, I don't know, two or three times a year. But I still love the guy. Uh, he's a remarkable human being. So, And, and when we got the assignment, uh, I was really torn. I thought, what? Uh, and my wife said, calm down. <laughs> She just, just calmed down. She said, think about it. You love athleticism and you love music. And this is a combination of the two. <laughs> and she was right. How, uh, did you, how did you handle Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan and all the drama that unfolded? Well, it was bizarre. From the, from, I can tell you now, I, well, I, can tell, I could have told you then, uh, uh, the, the whack on the, on the thigh occurred on January 6, 1994. Um, we were observers. ABC had the rights to the U.S. Nationals in Detroit, and uh, I, I was flying into Detroit on that Wednesday night uh, and I into a snowstorm, and I got in the rental car to go to the hotel, and uh, that's when I first heard of it. It happened that morning, but I've been in transit all day. And I turned into tuned into WJR, and and uh, the guy said, "Here's the latest update on the attack on Nancy Kerrigan." And I said, "What?" And that's how I heard first heard about it. And that night, um, I was a, a guest at a buffet uh, dinner held by the United States Figure Skating Association in the Westin Hotel in to downtown Detroit. And naturally, this is a topic of conversation in every uh, locale in this big ballroom. And a senior vice president of the Figure Skating Association said to me, 
when we get to the bottom of it, and we when we do, and we will, I guarantee you, Tanya Harding is going to be involved. And sure enough, she was. She, her, it was her ex-husband, uh, Jeff Gillooly, who hired these three thugs to, to attack Nancy. And the intent of which was to break her leg and make her ineligible uh, uh, for, to compete, and thus enhancing Tanya's chances uh, to win a medal. And uh, it just careened wildly out of control. Uh, I, the, the two ladies, Tanya and Nancy, were on dozen uh, magazine covers. CBS was all over the thing. CBS News was. And by the time, and then Nancy had to take and pass a test, uh, Tanya was thrown off the Olympic game, uh, Olympic team, filed a lawsuit, was reinstated, uh, and 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 uh, was allowed to compete ultimately. Uh, and then by the time we got to Lillehammer, it was just out of control. And Scott was really upset by it. Uh, matter of fact, he we were watching practice one afternoon. Um, the first time the two ladies, Tanya and Nancy, took the ice together. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there were just wild numbers of journalists. And see, there were 400 print journalists gathered around Nancy oh. Kerrigan's coach, wow. Evie, coaches, Evie and Mary Scottfold. And Scott and Tracy Wilson and I were sitting in our little perch or from which we would broadcast the games. And Scott got really angry and he said somehow somebody has forgotten the intent of of this uh, olympic competition Mm -hmm. and this has just become a huge cartoon now when they did skate the first night wednesday night uh the estimated rating and it's been downsized a little bit but the numbers came in the next day we had a 48.5 rating and the estimated audience was one Hundred and twenty-six million people. Oh man, what a so spectacle. hype works. <laughs> yeah, hype works. And but uh, uh, you know, it was it was really a tragic. It was such an intrusion on on the Olympic ideal. And I'm not naive. I understand that you know uh, th- there's a bit of deception, deceit that is involved in all this stuff. But uh, it really, it really just put a stamp on it, and and people don't remember the rest of the competition. They they tend to remember Nancy and Tanya and, and let it go at that. Well, yeah, I mean that's one of those events where you know that's coming and you're preparing for that. And like you said, the hype. Uh, you've also been involved in some amazing events where you don't know that something's coming. Like just a couple of years before that, in the NCAA tournament when Duke won the national championship and Christian Leitner hit the shot at the buzzer to win. Just tell us about your reaction to that. I mean, <laughs> when Grant Hill throws that pass in and he catches it and shoots it. I mean, just a desperation shot. Well, uh, it was, uh, yeah, uh, extraordinary. I mean, it's still regarded by many people uh, as the greatest college basketball game ever played. And uh, I, my partner was uh, Len Elmore. Uh, Lenny, uh, I worked for 15 years with Bill Raftery, but uh, they had 
they had set, I, I wasn't working with him that year mm-hmm. in 92. And so Lenny was my partner. He was a uh, All-American at the University of uh, Maryland and uh, a graduate of Harvard Law School and a wonderful guy. So Len and I uh, did, the, did the game, and the other two, it was Duke, Kentucky, and the other two teams that were there were uh, uh, Seton Hall and UMass, coached by John Calipari. Oh, yeah. P.J. Carlesimo was the coach at Seton Hall. And uh, it, it just, it, it was remarkable because it, they were number one and number two, but uh, Duke was heavily favored. Uh, Duke had three All-Americans, uh, Calvin Hill, Christian Leitner, and Bobby Hurley, uh, and Grant, a great Grant supporting Hill, right. cast. Grant Hill, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, Calvin was his dad. Exactly. <laughs> don't don't. I'm, I'm that. I, okay, now you've induced me to tell the whole story. <laughs> well, of course, you knew Calvin, right? <laughs> I knew Calvin very well, and that's part of the story. Uh, uh, and and Patino has he had one star, and that was a sophomore named Jamal Mashburn. But the other four guys had not been highly recruited. And Kentucky was coming off four years probation. Uh, but they'd had a good year. So now it goes back and forth. And with 2.1 seconds in overtime, uh, a guy named Sean, Sean, uh, Sean Hill uh, banks a shot uh, over Christian Leitner. And that puts uh, Duke up by one, 103-102. And uh, Duke immediately called timeout. And uh, Shashevsky went over it quite fervently what his plan was, and uh, and then uh, to my surprise, and and uh, Patino still defends his decision. Uh, they did not guard the inbound pass. Yeah. Uh, they they pulled everybody back, and they had two men on Leitner, and then uh, Grant completed a seventy foot pass with a little curve on it. <laughs> Uh, with 2.1, clock started, and Leitner had the presence of mind to realize that he could go to his right, uh, one dribble, and then come back and pull up a jump shot. And at that point, Leitner was 9 for 9 from the field, 10 for 10 from the free throw line, uh, 7 rebounds, and he probably been, should have been kicked out of the game midway through the second half. He put his size 14 in the midsection of a guy named Aminu Timberlake. Well, Timberlake was on the floor, but he was allowed to stay in. And uh, so here's here's the background story, and this I was able to get this on the air. Uh, Calvin, well, Janet, Calvin and Janet were really close friends of mine. Uh, he had been number one draft pick of the Cowboys in 1969, with a history major from Yale University. And Janet had been a, uh, uh, a sweet mate of Hillary Rodham at Wellesley College. And, wow. and we we got together periodically. And uh, in the summer, I think it was at training camp uh, in Thousand Oaks, California, Calvin said, Janet's expecting. And I, I said, well, when the time comes and when she gives birth, Give me a call, because I was still working local television. Now, give me a call, and I'd like to announce the birth on uh, on our 10 o'clock telecast. Right. So on the morning of October 5th, 1972, Calvin called 
And he said, Janet gave birth this morning to Grant Henry Hill. And so at 10 o'clock that night, I announced the birth of this Cowboy Star's first son. Uh, It turned out to be their only child, Calvin and Janet. And that Sunday, this was Friday, Sunday, uh, they were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. And with a minute and a half left to go in the game, Calvin took a pitch out from Roger Staubach, rolled to his right, and the Cowboys were trailing Pittsburgh 13-10. to 10. He pulled up through a 50-yard halfback pass uh, mm-hmm. and completed it to a diving wideout named Ron Sellers. And the Cowboys won 17-13. to 13. So I equated this pass of <laughs> Grant Hill 70 feet to Calvin's 50-yard touchdown pass, pass and made it the basketball equivalent of a halfback pass. And I looked back at Grant, and I thought, I announced this kid's birth 20 years ago, and now he's a six-foot-eight-inch sophomore at Duke University. And, oh, a couple years later, maybe 10 years later, uh, I was sharing a seminar, a, a, a position on the podium at a seminar with Bill Raftery, uh, Grant and Steve Smith, who had been an All-American at Michigan State. And I told that story to 300 people. <laughs> and Grant looked at me afterwards. He said, I never knew that. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I, I told, I announced your birth. And he called his mother. And I saw him the next morning. He said, Mom says you really did that. And I said, Grant, did you think I'd <laughs> lie to you? <laughs> so we had that in common ever since. <laughs> and it just... It, it it brings me uh, so much more into the whole game. And uh, I don't know if you remember, Joe, but there was a game between Butler and Duke oh, yeah. in the championship game yeah. years later, and Gordon Hayward uh, launches a 50-foot <laughs> jump, uh, jump uh, right. 50-foot pass, and it clanged off the rim. Now, if that had gone in, I think we'd be talking about our game being number two. <laughs> I, you're probably right. But that, yeah, and that I is do. The, that's the definition of coming for full circle with Hill. With, oh, my gosh, yeah. And Grant, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I corresponded with Grant just two and a half months ago. Janet passed away, uh, and she and I was in contact with, with Grant, uh, and and she passed away. She had suffered from brain cancer for a year, and she was only seventy one, I think. Oh. I believe that's correct. And uh, so I got a hold of, of uh, Grant to express my condolences, and uh, he gave me his dad's contact information. I didn't have it, and uh, he he said, "Please send a text to my dad. He won't respond, but he'll sure read it." And I did so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an unfortunate ending to to that whole story. But Grant, uh, now working with Raft and Jim Nance, and, and he's a brilliant, brilliant man, oh, really yeah. a bright guy. Yeah, and so. he's great. And Bill Raftery is uh, amazing. And you mentioned he wasn't on that call, but you guys did work together a lot, and he had to be one of the more colorful analysts that you worked with in your career, right? <laughs> without question. <laughs> Bill and I, we both love telling this story. Uh, we were assigned together for the very first time in February of 1983. So we're going back a couple of wow. years. And our first game, that, and we didn't know each other. 
was in Columbia, South Carolina. The South Carolina Gamecocks in a wildly anticipated intersectional game between the University of Idaho Vandals. That was that was a televised game. <laughs> and Bill and I worked it. And ironically, we were assigned back the next game, next week. So we got along right away. And then Bill said, listen, this is great fun. We're back here in a week for Marquette in South Carolina. And the Marquette basketball uh, All-American was a guy named Doc Rivers, who's done quite well in his life. And and, uh, he said, I'm going to bring Joni, his wife, and you bring Nancy, and I bet the four of us have a great week together. We can so we did, and the four of us just got along so well, and uh, we have a friendship that we it continues to this day, and we each got a call from the executive in New York, a production manager, I mean, vice president. Boy, you guys sounded great together. Uh, we can't wait to hear you again. Well, again was seven, uh, 83, 17 years later. Oh, man. We did not work together. That's why he wasn't on call with Duke, Kentucky. Uh, and that's why Lenny Elmore was. And they, they put Bill with a variety of people. Uh, but we never got re, re, uh, re-upped until 2000. And then 2000, and we kept in touch uh, through the years. And uh, I know I... Uh, the late Doak Walker and I sponsored a charity golf tournament out here in Steamboat for uh, 15 years, and uh, it was Doak's football playing friends and and my uh, my friends from a variety of different sports. And Bill and his wife came out here and played in that, along with Tommy Heinsohn and his wife. And uh, but so we 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 kept in touch. Uh, but it was not, not until 2000, and then we they they decided well the guys are pretty good together, so we repaired for the next 15 years, and uh, we just we had such a great friendship, and that uh, just manifested itself in the broadcast. It it came through, I think, and I, I would put him at the top of the list of uh, in terms of friendship. With any any partner in any sport that I've ever had, we uh, we keep in touch periodically. I talked to him last week, and he'll call. Uh, I call him and just how you doing? How's Joni? And uh, we try to get together whenever we whenever it's possible. Yeah, he is just the best. Uh, I'm also curious about. I mean, we've talked about your association with the NFL and, and all of these different sports uh, and, and college sports in general. I mean, there's just so much excitement involved in being on SEC telecast for as long as you were. Uh, what was the best part of it? Well, uh, how important it became. Uh, I didn't realize then uh, until I was immersed in it. Uh, uh, I can, I, Joe. I can remember my very first game. Todd Blackledge was my partner, mm-hmm. and I worked with Todd for six years, and then Gary Danielson for eleven. But we had Florida at Tennessee, and I'd never been at Neyland Stadium until that first weekend in in September of of uh, 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 whatever year it was. Oh, two thousand. Okay, and uh, and. Uh, 
Florida won on last-second touchdown pass from Jesse Palmer to Jabbar Gaffney. And uh, it was or was not a catch. The the side judge, or the back judge ruled that it was a completed pass, and uh, Tennessee fans will still scream and holler that he never held possession long enough. Uh, but when we got off the air, I looked at Todd, and I said, are they all like this? And he <laughs> smiled and said, enough of them. And so that was my introduction to SEC football. I had actually done one, uh, Tennessee at Auburn, in 1987, I worked with Dick Vermeil, but that was uh, we just had a weekend away from the NFL. We did the NFL back then, and uh, Dick and, and Dick and I for one year, and that was in between Terry Bradshaw assignments. Uh, so, uh, but but I, my real introduction to the SEC was that Saturday in in 2000, and I just I just became increasingly aware of the significance of this sport in this part of the country. And we see uh, CBS took a bit of a gamble. They took what was widely regarded as a regional sport, and we had a national telecast every Saturday. And uh, by gosh, it succeeded in large part because of the excellence uh, with which SEC schools played the game. And then I, I think we did our part to enhance the viewers' appreciation of what it was all about. And uh, I, I'm so much more of a college fan now that, than I am uh, the, the NFL. Uh, but I, that's true of college basketball as well. I'm, I'm much more uh, attuned to the college sports. And I'm, I know what the reasons are. I mean, I buy into all of it. Uh, yeah. And I, I forget for uh, at least a four and a half hours on Saturday that they're not really all student athletes. You know, they all really don't all go to class, but uh, nevertheless, that being said, I, I love the pageantry. I love the enthusiasm. Uh, I love the competition. And I, I've said this many, many, many times. I grew up in Austin, Texas. And, I was familiar with UT. I had two idols in my life. One was Daryl Royal, and the other was Coach Doak Walker. Mm -hmm. And Coach Royal and I, because he was the coach when I was growing up. And then we later got to work together for one year at ABC. And uh, I knew about rivalries. I mean, I can't wait for this weekend because it's Texas-Oklahoma. <laughs> and I thought that was the biggest rivalry in college football. And I was lucky. I did one Ohio State-Michigan game. I also did one UCLA-USC game. I know what those rivalries are about. But there is nothing, nothing compared to Alabama-Auburn. Uh, there's, a, there's a myth that uh, when you are born, you must declare your allegiance before your baptism. <laughs> you are either going to grow up saying War Eagle <laughs> or you're going to grow up saying "Roll Tide," and that's a uh, that's a stamp put on your forehead, and you can't get away from it. And I know it's uh, a myth, but I mean, honest to God, uh, I share one little anecdote about Alabama Auburn. Uh, uh, <laughs> we were 
when we had this corporate department in Atlanta, Nancy and I would drive to anything under four hours. Yeah. Uh, and so we had driven to Tuscaloosa, and that is about exactly a four-hour drive in Atlanta. And we did a game. I'm not sure uh, who was playing Alabama, but we did the game. And then the next Sunday morning, we're driving back, and we stopped for lunch in Oxford, Alabama, uh, on Interstate 20, uh, and went into a, a Cracker Barrel, which is a chain in the South. Yeah. And that's fine dining. It's five-star dining in the South. Right. <laughs> and, but we're big fans of that whole, uh, that whole chain. Anyway, we have our lunch, and then we, I collect coffee mugs uh, from various places uh, around the country and around the world. I'm sitting here drinking coffee out of, out of a cup from Nova Scotia. And, uh, but we, we, we tried to get everybody in the Southeast Conference a coffee mug. And so I went back, and, or Nancy did rather, and got one from Auburn and one from Alabama. Now we're checking out of the counter. And the young lady behind the cash the cash register looked at us, and she said, with a big, serious look on her face, are these gift, Christmas gifts or are y'all a split family? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it's serious down here. It really is serious. Yeah. <laughs> Matter of fact, I just got to, uh, even as, as old as I am and as uh, almost retired as I am, I saw there was a baseball card collection, not, not Topps Gum, but similar. That was, Joe, it was published in 1989. And it mm-hmm. was a series of 10 network announcers. And there was Costas and Al Michaels and Pat Summerall. And, and uh, anyhow, somehow I made the cut. <laughs> and just an hour before we talked, I signed a... a Four baseball cards uh, with my photo. I, I look a little different now than I did in '89. <laughs> I have hair. I had hair back then, and I was skinny. Uh, but uh, I get them once a week. I bet of people who are card collectors and autograph collectors. And I just signed four of them this morning uh, from 1989. So uh, uh, it. I'm amazed that people do that, first of all. But, uh, again, it's a reminder to me of of a, a, a career that, thank God, people still remember. Oh, of course. Before we finish up, Vern, uh, we have a, a mutual friend who passed away a few years ago, and Chuck Gardner, who was your longtime statistician. I mean, he was just the best guy ever. He was so uh, humorous. I just loved him to death, and I know you did. And uh, I just wondered what made him special as a statistician and as a person. Well, loyalty and personality. Uh, I first met Chuck when I took I took a two year hiatus from CBS when we lost the NFL to Fox, and I stayed for one year uh, in '95, and then I took an offer. Mike Pearl, who had, who had been a uh, executive producer at CBS. Uh, became the the uh, overall guy at at uh, Turner. Yeah, uh, Mike and I were dear friends, and he called me and he said, "Come on down here and and work for us for a while." And I did for two years. And I did Sunday night football with Pat Hayden, uh, NFL, another of my favorite guys. And I did basketball first of all with with uh, 
with uh, Doc Rivers and Danny Ainge and uh, uh, Chuck, the Detroit Lion coach, helped me out. Oh, uh, oh, uh, Chuck Daly. Thank you very much. Yeah. Pistons, yeah. When you get eighty-two, you'll find out what this is like. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just a senior moment there, uh, and and uh, they had a rotating group of statisticians, and uh, that many of those guys, Marty Aronoff has been there for fifty years, I bet. Oh yeah. And and they're uh, different guys that work in 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 that role, and Chuck was assigned to me. Maybe the second game we did, and there was something about his impish personality <laughs> and his ability. Uh, I mean, he was just great at it, and he had such a warmth about him, and we bonded right away. And so then when I went back to CBS, uh, I said, we need to hire Chuck, and, and they were, they uh, they allowed me to bring a statistician along, and he was my guy for all those years, and he suffered from diabetes, as you remember, Joe. Yeah. And uh, uh, I can remember we did a game in Louisville, and... Uh, he could hardly walk. We we walked back to the hotel. It was only two and a half blocks. But there was a little uphill uh, climb to it. And that's when I really became aware of how badly he was suffering. Yeah. And uh, and we lost him. And, and uh, But he was a, just a wonderful human being. And he was a vital, vital part of what we accomplished during all those years. Vern, thank you so much for the time today. It's been great hearing all these memories, these stories uh, from the past. I appreciate it. I hope to get to see you again. I only got to work with you one time, and it was because Chuck Gardner got snowed in. So I got to do your stats at UCLA. I'll never forget it, but I hope I get to see you again soon. Thank you very much. You bet, Joe. It's always good to reconnect with you. That's Vern Lundquist. What a treat it was to talk to him today. Join us again next time for another edition of the Sports Virus Podcast. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Thanks for listening on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.